We are doing an Advent series. <clears throat> it's, it's, it's fascinating. Um, <clears throat> we usually take uh, uh, a, a book of the Bible and work our way through it, just preaching through it that way. But when we get to Advent, of course, each week of Advent is thematic. And uh, so we, we pick that theme. But this week I, I decided, let me look at the, the church lectionary and the text that I'm going to be preaching from, the text that we used in the call and response, are all texts from the lectionary, which there are churches that they just get a text to sign as they work their way through the whole of Scripture uh, each year. And uh, so what that means for us is we're going to be looking at texts that certainly tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of believers are gathered today are going to be looking at, hearing read, discussing, and, and doing that as we gather and discuss this theme of joy and um, I think it's good to do that periodically, to be reminded that we're part of something much bigger than ourselves. And, and uh, so uh, we are indeed, and it's, it's important that we remember, remember that. Well, if you would, if, if you want to follow along in your Bible, now we'll have them up on the screen, uh, but the verses that we'll be looking at this week, uh, Isaiah 35 will be our first one. Uh, and we'll spend a good bit of time in that through the course of the message, but then Matthew 11 and James chapter 5. So those are the three places we're going to be looking. Um, and um, we're going to begin by reading the text, and then we'll pray. I'll be reading from the New International Version. Isaiah 35. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon, they will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The clean will not journey on it. Wicked, or the unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go uh, about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. Then in Matthew 11, we read this beginning in verse 2. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you see and hear. Or hear and see. The, The blind receive sight. The lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. And then finally, James 5, if you would read this with me, uh, beginning in verse 7. 
Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to this theme of joy from the Scriptures, this theme of joy in the gospel of our salvation. Lord, there are many here that are experiencing joy. There are many here who are currently not experiencing joy. And I pray that your promises and the truths of your word would minister to both, to each person in their particular place. And that you'd restore joy to those who need their joy restored. And that you'd anchor our joy, even for those of us that are joyful in the right things, the things in which they should be anchored and not in worldly things. Do a work in us by your Spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, the title of my message today is Jesus, Our Joy Guaranteed. Jesus, Our Joy Guaranteed. Advent, which involves waiting... And joy, which is, I mean, it's an emotion. It's kind of, it's interesting to just stop and think about an emotion and describe an emotion. But Advent, this this idea of waiting for what's coming and joy might not naturally seem to go together. We think joy comes when the waiting is over. When the light dawns, Upon the darkness, when longing is fulfilled, that's when joy comes. But Advent speaks of the coming of Christ, both His first and His second, and all the comings in between, which we long for as He intervenes in our circumstances. But implicit in Advent is our waiting, much like children wait to open their presents on Christmas. I saw on Facebook that the Vandervelds, Joe and Caitlin, are practicing something to help form this understanding uh, during Advent, even in little Thea, um, they're gradually putting out presents under the tree and explaining that they must wait until Christmas. Much as the world had to wait for Christ, we now wait again for His return, as they waited for Christ's first coming, and now we wait again. And so they're, they're describing that. Now, Caitlin said she's not exactly sure how successful it will be with uh, was a three-year-old, I think, so, <laughs> you know, we'll see, but... <laughs> I appreciate the effort. And and these are the kinds of things that begin to form an understanding, a Christian perspective in our children. And we do it every year and repeat it, and and they begin to get that sense. Advent stands in contrast to the certainty that the world calls us to embrace. Certainty in ourselves. Advent is the start of the year for the Christian calendar. See, we've already had our new year with the first week of Advent. Our our year has begun. Think about how that compares to the ball dropping, pick yourself up by the bootstraps way of thinking the world promotes for New Year's. New Year's is all about resolutions, which are fine in themselves to be sure, but resolutions upon which we determine what progress we will make. It takes control. It's time to take control of your life. The church, on the other hand, begins the year contemplating that we wait. We live by faith, we hope, and wait 
for God to come. We long for peace. We experience it spiritually and wait for it to become our external experience. We have joy, but not because of what we are doing, rather because of the one for whom we are waiting. We wait. In this very act of waiting, we acknowledge our dependence on God. We acknowledge our inability to bring these things about by ourselves. There's a certain peace in that, a rest, a ceasing from striving to try to make everything happen. The world would tell you that there, that, that there is no, or rather, not that there is no God. The world will tell you that you're a God. Create your own future. You create your own destiny, your own reality, your own life. That's a lot of pressure. <laughs> I mean, because you'd have to be God to accomplish it, to be sure. It's an impossibility. Advent reminds us of our finitude, of our limitations. We wait upon the infinite one, the limitless one, and therefore we have joy. Waiting for one to come stands in contrast to certainty. Certainty is the stock and trade of the world. Certainty of what we will do. Certainty of writing our own story. Certainty that we too will enter into the American myth of rags to riches as long as we do everything we can. For the believer, faith is the certainty of things hoped for. Faith in another. Faith has to do with seeking a city whose builder and maker is God. Not man. It hopes for the reign of Christ, the peaceable kingdom that he brings, the light that he brings to a dark world. Faith trusts that he will make our path straight, even if it isn't the path of our choosing. Amen? How can we have joy in a life of faith? John seems to have had a question or two along that order. I mean, he was sitting in prison. Are, are you the one to come? wasn't exactly his expectations of what it would be like when the Messiah came. Before we jump right into the sermon, I want you to take a moment, and if you've got your hand out there, maybe under where I've got introduction, there's some blank space in there. Or on the back, there's some blank space. But I'd encourage you to, we're just going to take a couple of moments of silence. And I want you to write down those things which might tempt you, that might keep you from experiencing joy. What are those things? So just prayerfully take a moment and consider what they are. If you don't have a pen, there might be one on the seat back in front of you. If, if not, you can maybe write them down in a memo on your phone, but don't be checking all your other messages while you're there. What are those things which can test your joy, which might keep you from experiencing joy? Well, I trust that those things have come to your mind, and, and it's helpful to, to name them so that you can later name them before the Lord in prayer.
As we explore the joy of Advent this morning, we'll see that Jesus is the guarantee of our hope. So that though we have longing that remains unfulfilled, we have joy in the waiting. We have longing that remains unfulfilled, yet we can still have joy in the waiting. Jesus guarantees, sustains joy in our waiting. And so we're going to explore this under three headings. Promised joy, surprising joy, and waiting joy. Promised joy, surprising joy, and waiting joy. And let's begin first with promised joy. And think about that text we read from Isaiah 35. There, joy and rejoicing presume sorrow and sighing. Just as the beauty of the dawn presumes the darkness of the night. The joy and rejoicing came after sorrow and sighing in the wilderness. Do you ever have times when you know what you ought to do, but you can't? Your feeble hands need strengthening. Amen? You see, in the desert, being parched precedes gladness. In the wilderness, emptiness or barrenness preceded rejoicing and shouting for joy. Feeble hands, weak knees, fearful hearts, and desperate uh, need of rescue preceded strength and setting things right. Blind eyes preceded opening, deaf ears preceded unstopping, being mute preceded shout, shouting for joy. The redeemed that return with singing, everlasting joy and gladness return from a place of sorrow and sighing. You ever have times when you know the way that you should walk as a believer, but you can't find the strength to get up and do it? Your weak knees need to be strengthened, need to be made steady again. Blindness describes our inability to see, our inability to even know what we don't see that we need to see. Deafness describes our inability to hear God, and muteness, our inability to speak praises to God. These are turned into open eyes, unstopped ears that hear the gracious call of our God, and mouths that shout for joy in what God is doing. Israel had plenty of sorrow and sighing. They understood sorrow and sign. When they read Isaiah 35, they understood the sorrow and sign side of that text. They longed for the joy and the rejoicing side of that text. A brief exploration of the history of Israel from the captivity, when they went into captivity in Babylon, all the way to the coming of Christ, reveals a depth of sorrow and sign, of darkness and dying, that strains our ability to focus, requiring distract, distraction to keep us from despair. Into that kind of darkness. Isaiah describes the coming of Jesus this way in Isaiah 9. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest. As warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. And then looking down to verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Is it any wonder that John had questions about whether or not Jesus was the one to bring all this? As he sits there in prison? The promise would appear to be total and complete. In the verses I passed over, it even speaks of the yoke that burdens 
and the rod of the oppressor, that they are shattered. Even the boots of the soldiers that were used to step on their necks, symbolic of this oppression that was being brought upon them, are burned. John is sitting in prison, arrested by Herod, another oppressor. And his foot seems to be well in place on top of John's neck, so to speak. That leads to our second heading, which is surprising joy. Read afresh that section in Matthew 11. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Jesus answers John's questions with language right from Isaiah. Oh, it's not word for word, but clearly there's a relationship between that Isaiah promise and what Jesus is saying. He adds a few other things to uh, kind of develop the picture a bit for John, to be sure. You see, John's expectation of the Messiah's coming was quite different than his experience of the Messiah's coming. John may have missed that all the things Isaiah describes happen in the wilderness. The wilderness, are, that's the uninhabitable places. It's not the city. Cities are safer, or so we think, because we're all around each other. We're going to make sure we have what we need. The wilderness, there's nobody there to help take care of me. I've got to do it on my own. It's dry. There's no water. There's nothing that's being grown. It's the wilderness. How do you survive in a wilderness? But yet in Isaiah's prophecy, it turns out that the wilderness becomes a place of faithful, of fruitfulness. The uninhabitable is transformed into habitable in the coming of Jesus. But it's still a wilderness. The highway will be there in the wilderness. That is why this joy is surprising. It will be called a way of holiness. You see, we will learn obedience, the the way of holiness, in the wilderness, not in the places of abundance. It was that way with Christ, according to Hebrews 5, where it says that He learned obedience from the things that He suffered. And it will be that way with us. We expect highways to be in cities, the habitable places. God's city is not like man's city, to be sure. It's a city yet to come. The city of man is the here and now city. It's Babel. We expect highways, progress, to be in places of prosperity and abundance, not the places of lack and suffering. God's ways are indeed higher than our ways, and His thoughts higher than our own, and even higher than John the Baptist. You see, that is the true perspective, that, but His ways often do appear to be lower than ours. See, they are truly higher than ours, that's true. But when we're experiencing them, they don't appear to be higher. They might just appear to be a bit lower. Take, for example, John sitting in prison. He probably never thought, God's ways are higher than my ways. Oh, yes, that means I should be in a prison. No, he wasn't thinking that. When we hear that God's ways are higher than our ways, we think how wonderful they must be. 
and they are. (laughs) But they don't always appear that way. The cross did not appear to be a wonderful path, but we sing about it every Sunday now, do we not? Thanks be to God for that. How often is our experience like John's? Our expectations of what following Jesus will result in, well, they get smashed. We find ourselves in the wilderness. For John, the wilderness was a prison and eventually a platter for his head, but his fruitfulness was not hindered by that. For Elizabeth Packard, the path to what she described, uh, described as, quote, an indescribable emotion of joy and thankfulness was a hard path. A wilderness indeed. You see, Elizabeth lived in the good old days, you know, the 19th century, and discovered all too late that in 1860, a husband could have his wife committed to an insane asylum with no objective evidence of insanity. In many cases, this was a life sentence. No way of getting out. Her husband was a pastor. As it turned out, he began to change the theological direction of the church because it would allow him to get a generous donation to build a bigger church. However, in the church Bible study, Elizabeth made it known quite eloquently and effectively that she did not agree with this new theology. She stood in the way of his success, and of course, he could not divorce her and reach that same goal. It was simple enough. Have her taken against her will to an asylum and committed with no path for help, in a place where patient abuse was practiced and even encouraged. Now we're tempted to think, yeah, but who was right about their doctrine? See, we're tempted to wonder, was he right or was she right? Does it really matter? (laughs) As Augustine said, if you have the wrong doctrine, but it teaches you to, to love your neighbor, to love God and neighbor, then it's, not to be condemned, and you're to be commended. And if you have the right doctrine, I might add, but it doesn't teach you to love God and your neighbor, well, there's a big problem. And there's one problem in their plan, this plan of locking her away in an asylum. Elizabeth was actually quite sane and quite competent, and she became such a problem for the doctor running the asylum that he eventually let her out in an effort to make his own life easier. (laughs) However, Elizabeth was not satisfied with her own freedom. She wouldn't forget her sisters in bondage back at the asylum and in the asylums all across the country. Elizabeth was, as the book about her life is titled, The Woman They Could Not Silence. For most, the fact that she had been committed to an asylum was proof enough that she was insane. The fact that she spent three years there was proof positive that she was insane. That's all they needed. When she was finally released, her husband took her to a relative in a distant city and threatened that if she ever returned to her hometown, he would have her committed again, this time in a facility that no one ever got out of. But never returning meant she could never see her children again. I believe there were six of them taken away when one of them was just weaned. So, of course, she returned. Before long, her husband once again had her locked in a room with boarded up windows and locks on the outside just to await for the people to come from an asylum to take her against her will. When this happened the first time, she had hoped that she could free herself from the asylum by a writ of habeas corpus. That's a fancy word, simply meaning that 
someone can't be unlawfully detained without being able to stand before a judge. You'd think that's reasonable, right? Somebody's going to hear whether or not I'm insane. The problem was that she couldn't get a writ of habeas corpus because she was lawfully detained. Because it was perfectly lawful for a husband to detain his wife in an insane asylum with no other outside evidence. That sounds kind of crazy, but it was true. The law was completely unjust. This time, however, knowing that he would lock her up in their home in advance of having people come to take her to the asylum, she set a trap in which she was granted a writ of habeas corpus for his unlawful imprisonment in the home. Now she would be able to publicly make the case for her sanity, and she won in a court of law. Um, As great as her joy was in hearing the verdict, she described it as a grateful joy. It wasn't until years later when she was able to get a law passed that enabled every woman in the asylum to have a trial by jury that she experienced an incredible emotion of joy and thankfulness, as she put it. She indeed traveled a highway through a wilderness to get there. Between Christ's first coming and the final coming is a period of already and not yet. His reign is already and restores so much to us, but in a wilderness. We are not yet at the promised land. We are in the wilderness. Like Elizabeth, our great joy is a grateful joy for a partial freedom that still awaits the fullness of joy. At times, it even touches on that indescribable emotion of joy and thankfulness, as she described it. At times we can taste that. At times we can feel that. But then it ebbs, because we're in the already and the not yet. The joy God has for us is surprising, because we can have it while we wait, and because it will come out of what seems to be the most unlikely of circumstances. Who would ever think that she might experience such indescribable joy out of being committed to an insane asylum against her will? And against all evidence. But knowing that truth enables us to have joy while we wait. It's a surprising joy. While we endure those most unlikely of circumstances for producing joy, we can still have joy. Thanks be to God. Circumstances that would otherwise produce only sorrow. Because we serve the God who raises the dead, who causes the desert and the parched land to be glad, the wilderness to rejoice and blossom. And that God will bring us an indescribable and glorious joy, as Peter calls it. And that leads to our final point, and that is waiting joy. So we have promised joy, we have surprising joy, but there is waiting joy. And James 5, we read, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you too will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Joy comes with the harvest. Joy comes, as is often described in the Old Testament, when our grain and new wine abound, so to speak. That's the harvest. That's the time of plenty. And that's when joy is most natural. Yet we must be patient. Patience stands in contrast to grumbling against one another in that text. There's a relationship 
between this, this patience that we need to have, and joy. We see it in Philippians chapter 4, where after instructing two sisters, Yodia and Syntyche, instructing them in how to get along, they were in conflict with each other, and how they needed to reconcile, and how others needed to help them reconcile. Paul writes this, Rejoice in the Lord always, I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all, the Lord is near. See, he reminds them, there's, there's somebody near in your conflict. That'll change a conflict. I can remember times when Donna and I would be in the midst of a conflict and I suddenly remember the Lord is near. <laughs> oh! <laughs> By the way, just a short reading of the first couple of chapters, particularly the first chapter of uh, Malachi. Uh, we'll let you know what the Lord thinks when husbands are conflicting with their wives and not being kind. It's not a pretty picture. He doesn't think well of it. And, and so, his nearness. There's a judge standing at the door, is how James puts it. But Paul says, oh, the Lord is near. The point's the same, is it not? And it's in knowing that he is near that we let our gentleness be evident to all and that we can rejoice in the Lord always. Patience bears the fruit of joy and rejoicing. It is joy in waiting based on the guarantee of ultimate joy to come. It's it's not ultimate joy you have when you're waiting, but it's joy nonetheless. It's joy because we are promised ultimate joy. Thanks be to God. We must tend the crops with joy knowing the harvest will come. We must plow before that with joy, knowing the harvest will come. We must wait for the autumn and spring rains, knowing that a harvest is coming. You know, the image of a judge standing at the the door may not seem positive, but remember Elizabeth Packard in that asylum? What did she want? Stand before a judge. To stand before a judge. She wanted to stand before a judge because she was being treated unjustly. James makes it clear that if we grumble against one another, we'll be on the wrong side of that judge. To be on the judge's right side requires patience in our waiting. Such patience will have joy rather than anger and grumbling. Impatience bears the fruit of grumbling. John the Baptist had to learn to have a waiting joy. We must plow with joy because we are waiting for that harvest. Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. That doesn't mean he was all joyful going to the cross. He was suffering. But he had a joy anchored in a future joy that enabled him to endure. Faith in a sure hope for future joy can create a strong joy that helps us endure. Just a few thoughts in closing, then we're going to have the Lord's table. We sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, God with us. With us, God. He's the with us God, Emmanuel. And ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to you, O Israel. I would sing it, but that might cause you to run with your ears covered.
But note that even in this song, we see this call to rejoice even while we wait in captivity. A call to rejoice even while we wait in captivity. At the beginning of this sermon, I asked you to write down some, th- some of those things that might test your joy. As you think about those, I wonder how Jesus' guarantee of a future joy can help you in that moment as you think of those things that test your joy. How can you have joy while you're waiting? And then, can you set those things before the Lord? Name them. And sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. How, how does God with us allow us to rejoice, rejoice? How does God with us allow our wilderness to be filled with blooming flowers? Jesus is the guarantee of our hope. So even though we have longing that remains unfulfilled, we have joy in the waiting. Jesus guarantees, sustains joy in our waiting. Amen? Paul tells us that whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. The way of Christ, the the way of brokenness and distribution is the way of holiness until He comes. This is our bread in the wilderness. As we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, let's reflect on those things that might test our joy and how Christ's brokenness can bring us joy even in the waiting. If I can have those come forward that are helping with the distribution of the Lord's table. On the night Jesus was betrayed, He took bread And he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is given for you. He took it and he distributed it among them. And then after supper he took the cup. And he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. A new covenant in my blood. And Paul tells us later, as often as you eat this bread, drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Well, Father, we give you thanks for this meal that you have provided, this meal that is a messianic banquet, that is indeed a banquet, but it's a banquet for us now in the wilderness. One day we will live in the fullness of what Christ has accomplished. Today, we live in the already and the not yet. And we eat this bread that sustains us, this gospel bread. This reality of what Christ has done for us in His coming. Reminding us of the reality of what Christ will accomplish in His next coming. As we contemplate your brokenness, for us. Let us also contemplate how you can give us joy even in this meal in our own brokenness in places where we're in the not yet. In Jesus' name, amen.